the Lord be with you. And also with you. Bless the Lord who forgives all our sins. God's mercy endures forever. We gather in the spirit of one who sang, unite the pair so long disjoined, knowledge and vital piety, learning and holiness combine, truth and love for all to see. The liturgy, music, and homily this Lord's Day, lifted in an empty church with none but worship leaders present, are offered in the praise of God for our virtual congregation across New England at WBUR 90.9 FM and around the globe now and later at WBUR.org. We welcome your prayerful and material support, your written or emailed responses, your self-selection of forms of leadership and service in our midst, and as the spirit moves, your presence with us in virtual worship come Sunday. This is the day the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. As we are able, may we stand in the praise of God. Father. 
May we pray. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise, that among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. Friends, good friends, good friends all, as Daniel Marsh was wont to greet, through this season of distance, necessary and preventive, we offer a proximate word of faith in a pastoral voice toward a common hope. A word of faith in a pastoral voice toward a common hope. And you, you all, and you, each one, are a fragrant offering, a gift. The flowers of the season we may miss and we may lack this year in Lent come Easter. But you are that garden and you are those flowers. And you are, as Paul says in Philippians 4.18, that fragrance, that gift, that sacrifice from God. In the prayers you offer, in the kindness you show, in the notes you write, in the way of love you choose, you are that fragrance, that Lent to Easter perfume of grace. As the music guides us in that spirit, let us lift our prayers of confession to Almighty God. Let us pray.
good news, the grace of God, God's pardon, and God's peace. Beloved, if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 6 through 11. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit, since the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies and also through his spirit that dwells in you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in saying verses from Psalm 130 with the Antiphon. 
out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, so that you may be free. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is great power to redeem. It is he who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. Please rise in spirit for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the gospel. Holy Gospel according to St. John, chapter 11, verses 17 to 44. Glory, Glory to you, O Lord. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me 
will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ.
Someone asked last week after our virtue worship service about the meaning of the word fallow. I had to look it up, he said. What does it mean? A grandmother's long ago high school graduation gift, Webster's Dictionary answers, fallow, land plowed but not seeded for one or more growing seasons to kill weeds or make the soil richer. The plowing of land to be left idle thus, left uncultivated or unplanted, untrained, inactive, especially of the mind, to leave land unplanted after plowing, to lie fallow, remain uncultivated, unused, unproductive for a time. For a time, our time is a fallow time. You need not fear the fallow. You need not fear a fallow time. Come Sunday, a handful of worship leaders alone in an empty chapel and an invisible but vibrant virtual congregation praying and singing along, we are honest about the fallow, our fallow time. Nevertheless, we are here to hallow the fallow. You are listening to hallow the fallow. You need not fear the fallow. You are offered strength so to hallow it. For the Gospel of John allowed a meager four-week introduction into our lectionary this month by interruption of Matthew is centrally, even solely, an announcement of presence, divine presence, the presence of God to hallow the fallow. Really only this theological interpretative insight will make sense for you and me of John chapter 11. In 90 AD, some in the Johannine community spoke in the voice of Jesus. Especially this is so in the I am sayings. If Jesus on earth did not say these things, who did? Answer, the Johannine prophet the voice resounding in the fourth gospel. The preacher in John 11 announces presence. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. You are a person of faith, practice that presence. You are a Christian, practice that presence. You are a Christian yearning for a faith amenable to culture and a culture amenable to faith. Are you? Yes. Practice that presence. The ancient troubled community of the beloved disciple, that of John, has your back, especially even, even especially in a virulent epoch. Remember, what carries Jesus to the cross in the Gospel of John is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Not the cleansing of the temple, but the resurrection to life of Lazarus in the Johannine narrative brings the advent of the cross. Jesus here is crucified because he claims divinity and embodies divinity in this gospel. This makes a bit of sense of the placement of this reading just before Holy Week rather than just after. No good deed goes unpunished does not capture the gravity and eternity of the moment, but it does give the average hearer a point of orientation to John 11. John Ashton wrote fiercely of this gospel. 
conscious as they were of the continuing presence in their midst of the glorified one, no wonder the community, or rather the evangelist who was its chief spokesman, smoothed out the rough edges of the traditions of the historical Jesus. His portrait of Jesus arose from his constant awareness, which he shared with members of his community, that they were living in the presence of the glorified one. So dazzling was this glory that any memory of a less than glorious Christ was altogether eclipsed. They realized that the truth that they prized as the source of their new life was to be identified not only with the Jesus of history, but with the risen and glorious Christ, and that this was a Christ free from all human weakness. The claims they made for him were at the heart of the new religion that soon came to be called Christianity. The difference between John's portrait of Christ and that of the other gospels is best accounted for by the experience of the glorious Christ constantly present to him and his community. For the two basic historical problems of the New Testament are ancient cousins, first cousins to our two fundamental issues of salvation, of health today. The first historical problem behind our 27 books and preeminently embedded in John is a form of dislocation, our shared condition, March 2020, dislocation, the movement away from their mother religion. How did a religious movement founded by a Jew, born in Judea, embraced by 12 and 500 within Judaism, expanded by a Jewish Christian missionary, Paul, become, within 100 years, entirely Greek? The books of the New Testament record in excruciating detail show the development of this second identity, this coming of age that came with the separation from the mother religion. The second historical problem underneath the Newer Testament is disappointment, the despair that gradually accompanied the delay, finally the cancellation of Christ's return, the delay of the parousia. Jesus was an apocalyptic prophet. Paul expected to be alive to see the advent of Christ. Gradually though, the church confessed disappointment in its greatest immediate hope, the sudden coming of the end. These two problems, historical and fascinating, create our New Testament, the separation from Judaism and the delay of the parousia. In the fourth gospel, John, the two come together with great ferocity. What makes this matter so urgent for us is that these very two existential dilemmas, one of identity and one of imagination, are before every generation, including and especially our own. March, Lent, 2020. How shall we live in faith? How do I become a real person? How do we weather lasting disappointment? How do I grow up? How do we become mature? What insight do I need amid the truly harrowing struggles over identity to become the woman or man I was meant to become? What imagination, what hope molded by courage, do we need to face down the ennui right now in distance, necessary and preventive? 
More than any other document in ancient Christianity, John explored the first. More than any other document in ancient Christianity, John faced the second. Both mean choice. Both bring us to the summit of freedom. And once every three years, interrupting Matthew, we hear the great passages, Nicodemus, the Samaritana, the blind man, Lazarus. So hear the gospel, John 11, Sursum corda, lift up your hearts. We have the freedom to choose and to move from fear to love, from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight, from life to spirit, from isolation to community, from home to health, from rainbow to firmament, from control to freedom, from spiritual hunger to hungry spirituality, from nationalism to patriotism, from denominationalism to ecumenism, from death to life. In an Atlantic article this week, honest to the bone about our peril today, and rightly rejecting all thought that churches will be full by Easter and other mendacities, Ed Young nonetheless affirms, one could also envisage a future in which America learns now a different lesson. A communal spirit, ironically born through social distancing, causes people to turn outward to neighbors both foreign and domestic. The election of November 2020 becomes a repudiation of America first politics. The nation pivots as it did after World War II from isolationism to international cooperation. Buoyed by steady investments and an influx of the brightest minds, the healthcare workforce surges. Gen Z kids write school essays about growing up to be epidemiologists. Public health becomes the centerpiece of foreign policy. The U.S. leads a new global partnership focused on solving challenges like pandemics and climate change. In 2030, SARS-CoV-3 emerges from nowhere and is brought to heal within a month. May it be so. May it be so. Our Lenten sermon series, concluding today, has engaged in conversation with St. Teresa of Avila. From 2007 to 2016, Lent by Lent, we identified a theological conversation partner for the Lenten sermons, broadly speaking, out of the Calvinist tradition. In this decade, we have turned to the Catholic tradition. With Calvin, we encountered the chief resource for others we engaged over 10 years, voices like those of Jonathan Edwards, Paul of Tarsus, Marilyn Robinson, Jacques Ellul, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Karl Barth, Gabriel Vahanian, and themes like atonement and decision. In this decade, beginning with Lent 2017, the Marsh Chapel pulpit, a traditionally Methodist one, has turned left, not right, toward Rome, not Geneva, and are, we are preaching with and learning from the Roman Catholic tradition so important in the last 200 years in New England and some of its greatest divines, including Henry Nouwen, Thomas Merton, John of the Cross, Ignatius of Loyola, Erasmus, Hans Kung, Karl Rahner, and others, one per year. Perhaps you will suggest a name or two, not from Geneva, 
but from Rome. For those who recall, even if dimly, the vigor and excitement of Vatican II, there may well be other names to add to the list. We began with Henry Nouwen in 2017 and continued Thomas Merton in 2018, turning last year, 2019, to St. John of the Cross. Now in Lent 2020, we have listened in prayer for grace in the life, voice, heart, poetry, and spirit of Santa Teresa of Avila. The heart of our Lenten theological conversation partner 2020, Santa Teresa of Avila, her mode of prayerful, joyful living is found for you in, in recollection, collecting the mind's facilities and faculties so as to be consciously present to and with God. In discovery, the discovery of the self in and through conversation with Christ, which is a discovery of the kinship with God bestowed by grace. And this is a discovery of an ever-expanding space of human growth in love and understanding. The turn inward to find God in the soul, and the soul is like an infant at the breast. God's will is that we become agents of God's love. In Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving after communion is the center for her of spirituality. In humility, she wrote, I was humble enough to conceive of the humble Jesus Christ as my God. For Santa Teresa, not forgiveness, but becoming a forgiving person is what matters, even though, as she wrote, there are days on which one word alone distresses me. In compassion, not to judge one's neighbor is one of the chief points of monastic virtue, and she upheld it too. In learning, Santa Teresa of Avila assumes the role of teacher of scripture at a time and in a place when this was unheard of. She's an imaginative reader of scripture, and by her example shows the right of women to undertake this. Hers is a fully incarnational pattern of spirituality. In struggle, she was given to melancholy and was a chronic depressive and left to itself, as she noted, melancholy breeds madness. She further struggled, having responsibility for a large number of volatile and often disturbed souls in the new communities of her reform. In candor, the point of real self-knowledge is to become free of the self, she wrote, to turn attention to God in prayer. God's will is the life of practical charity in community. In listening, God summons us into a great castle, her most beautiful image. Like a good shepherd with a whistle so gentle that even the sheep themselves almost fail to hear it. In simplicity, her instructions about prayer, note them, use few simple words, record the pain of present circumstances, acknowledge the moral and spiritual horror of the world and the, the compulsive self-destructiveness of people, and watch the butterfly. Prayer is homecoming, she wrote, in love. Her prayer vocabulary includes gift beyond locutions, ecstasy, visions, 
keeping Jesus before our eyes to the height of spiritual marriage, the soul deep, the spirit high, the point, the birth always of good works, and the battle against the soul's forgetfulness, and especially her well-loved fusion of the supposedly distinct vocations of Mary and Martha, established as the highest stage of spiritual growth. Beloved, Rowan Williams, whose book Teresa has in part guided us this month, concludes, in Teresa, mysticism is demystified. Like St. John of the Cross, she emphasizes not moments, but stages in the movement Godward, decay and recomposition of available models of religious meaning, a hunger for illusory, illusory solidity, and recognition that mystics more than others need a religious tradition. To conclude this week, we have received here many prayerful notes. One read, good morning, Bob. I pray you and the entire chapel staff are well and keeping safe. I just wanted to drop in virtually to say hello and let you know that I have listened to the services by podcast, but I am missing community worship. I look forward to the day that we will worship together again. Thank you for your presence and your prayers. I appreciate you. Blessings to you and your lovely wife. To which this response, dear friend, thank you for this prayerful note, loving and honest. I share your sense of loss. It is a fallow time. It will be a lasting reminder of how precious every Sunday together is for us. But it will be a while still before we can return. So we will hold each other close in prayer and do kindnesses as you have done in writing. Blessings, Bob. Amen. We now come to the time in our service when we turn our hearts and minds to prayer and lift up our lives and ourselves to God. Please assume an attitude and posture of prayer as we sing together our call to prayer, Lead Me, Lord.
turning our hearts to God, who is gracious and merciful. We pray for the church, the world, and all who are in need. I will end each petition with, hear us, O God, and the response will be, your mercy is great. God of insight, open the hearts of the church and the world to all who testify to your deeds of power. Raise up voices in your church that are often silenced or overlooked due to age, gender expression, race, or economic status. Hear us, O God. Your mercy is great. God of insight, empower us to care for the land and all living things that dwell in it and beneath it. Provide rich soil for crops to grow. Bring rain to lands suffering drought. Protect hills and shorelines from damage caused by erosion. Hear us, O God. Your mercy is great. God of insight, bring peace to all people and nations. Anoint leaders who seek goodness, righteousness, and truth on behalf of all. Frustrate the efforts of those who would seek to cause violence or terror. Hear us, O God. Your mercy is great. God of insight, you care for our needs even before we ask. Come quickly to all who seek prayer this day, including those who are sick, vulnerable, anxious, and fearful. Accomplish healing through the work of doctors, nurses, medical researchers, and all who tend to human bodies. Hear us, O God. Your mercy is great. God of insight, help us to continue to lift up our unique gifts even though we remain physically distant from one another. Help us to find new and creative ways to be the body of Christ to one another in this time of crisis. Hear us, O God. Your mercy is great. God of insight, you call out to those who are asleep and awaken them to new life with you. We give thanks for your saints. Join us together with them as your children in this world and the next. Hear us, O God. Your mercy is great. According to your steadfast love, O God, hear these and all our prayers as we commend them to you. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. And now, with the confidence of children of God, we are bold to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
From the empty sanctuary of Marsh Chapel with only the worship leadership present, we greet you this morning, especially those of you listening from a great distance. We invite your prayerful and generous support for works of love and charity near and far, especially for those who prepare masks, ventilators, tests, distances, and leadership for those working right now with the neediest. And we also invite your mailed tithes and offerings to the support of our ministry here. Speaking of ministry, our own beloved director of music, Dr. Scott Ellen Jarrett, brings this morning a word of greeting. Scott? This time for all musicians has been so difficult because the thing that helps us reconcile it all is the one thing that we can't actually do together in this time. Um, so I'm deeply grateful for the musicians that are here this morning, and it's not the Marsh Chapel Choir, but rather our choral scholars, our, our professional staff, uh, who are beautifully and uh, responsibly six feet apart spaced in our gorgeous chancel uh, to make our music this morning. And for most of us, this is the only music that we are making in a given week now, and so it's a particular joy to lead in the broadcast and in the service today with this music. And I thank my colleagues very much for their presence and leadership this morning. A brief word about the piece that you're about to hear. Um, it's uh, a motet by Johann Ludwig Bach, who is the third, a third cousin of Johann Sebastian Bach. He was born about eight years before Johann Sebastian Bach. It's a motet for double chorus and continuo and uh, features a, a quartet of soloists with the balance of the choir, and today those soloists are Sarah Yanovich on soprano, Mary uh, Wikiatcha, uh, countertenor, Ethan Dupuy, tenor, and Paul Max Tipton, bass. Continual group is Guy Fishman on cello, and Justin Thomas Blackwell, of course, on organ. The piece is based entirely on the last little snippet of a verse from 1 John, the first chapter of 1 John, which says, the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, cleanses us from all sins. And that's all of the text for uh, nearly the entirety of the piece. It comes to conclusion. And then there are two verses from a chorale text from 1641 that uh, places all of this in a context. It's a deeply devotional motet extremely beautiful, um, and though in the scripture uh, the word blood of Jesus occurs only once, in this motet, Johann Ludwig Bach sets it 24 times. So There's a remarkable, remarkable devotional quality about it, and I'm, I'm delighted and thrilled to be able to present it uh, for all of you this morning with these very fine musicians. Thank you so much. May this, beloved, be our shared, virtual, lifted moment of offering.
Gracious God, we are thankful for everything you have entrusted to us, ourselves, our neighbors, our creation. Help us to continue your work in the world by serving others, especially those who face challenges, and supporting the work of the church in the world. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be and abide with each one of us now and forever. <laughs> 